This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited to have with me today Dr. Philip Cantrell, who will be speaking to us about his book, Revival and Reconciliation, The Anglican Church and the Politics of Rwanda, which is published by University of Wisconsin Press this year, 2022. The book looks at how from the very start of their involvement in Rwanda, the founders of the Anglican Church accepted erroneous myths about Rwanda and its people. And as a result, the book argues that the Anglican Church too closely aligned with whomever was in power throughout its interaction in Rwanda. As such, this has placed the church in a position of endorsing ruling authorities' misleading accounts of Rwandan history and failing to take into account its own role in exacerbating ethnic tensions prior to genocide. The book, therefore, takes a critical look at the church's complicity with authoritarian rule, uh, going back into older Rwandan history all the way up, really, till today. Um, And so it's a really interesting book looking at the interaction of, in a way, sort of two different institutions, the Anglican Church and Rwandan politics, um, and looks at the Catholic Church's involvement in Rwanda as well. So I'm really excited to have Dr. Kentrell here to discuss his book. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. So I was wondering if you could start us off um, by telling us how you came to this research question, because the Rwandan genocide is a much studied topic, um, though maybe not so much Rwanda itself always. The genocide often gets a lot of focus. Um, And of course, studying the Anglican and Catholic churches has a long intellectual history, but maybe not so much when it comes to involvement in Rwanda. So how did you come to this research question and this book? Well, like a lot of great research projects, uh, rather accidentally, uh, I, I uh, was at a university, a college rather, in, in Virginia, and I had done a few research trips to, to Tanzania, and uh, a local church sought my help in uh, doing a program to Rwanda in 2004. So my training had been in East African history, but that at the time did not include the Great Lakes or Rwanda specifically. So I did some uh, just initial uh, readings just to to be educated about the country and its genocide. Of course, I knew about the genocide and knew that I would be going to a country that was recovering from, from that. And so I, you know, from the start there, we were hosted by various Anglican bishops and uh, clergymen. And I uh, expected to be speaking French, which I am not skilled at, but I, I tried to brush up a little bit. Uh, but come to find out, they spoke better English than I did. And I thought that was interesting. And so just in conversations with, with where they were from and grew up and 
what they did in the genocide, I found out and very quickly gleaned that virtually all of the pastors and bishops I spoke with came from Uganda. So I thought that was curious, and I wasn't exactly sure what that meant. And I also observed a, a sort of uh, a disconnect between the clergymen and the parishioners when we would be ferried around to various churches for speaking engagements and to look at different kinds of development projects that the church in Virginia could, could undertake. And like, like many historians, I made notes and uh, came back to it uh, upon my return and started doing deeper reading into Rwanda and uh, came to find out that, uh, that most of the, the church hierarchy had come to Rwanda after the genocide uh, from Uganda. And, uh, and further gathered that most of the positions of political or religious significance in the state were former Ugandans. And, and so I, just, I kept digging deeper and deeper and uh, pursued this in the form of a few, a few, of a few articles. <clears throat> I made a return trip in 2007 under the same Anglican mission body, but this time uh, prepared to ask deeper questions uh, about the socio-political context that was going on. And through this uh, primary research and, and through just extensive reading of Rwanda's history, both before and after the genocide, I started to reach the conclusions that I come to in the book. Got it. Well, that makes a lot of sense how you kind of came to this particular question. Thank you for explaining. Um, so to start with the beginning of the book, in the first chapter, you introduce the pre-colonial history of Rwanda and make a clear link between this earlier time period and the conditions that lay out for the interactions of the Anglican Church in Rwanda later on. Specifically, you go into a lot of useful detail about how the idea of Hutu versus Tutsi being a race issue is a false understanding that the Anglican Church, along with a lot of other Western institutions, bought into because it f- fit their existing models of race and racism. So can you briefly explain to our listeners what the political situation was when the Anglican Church came into Rwanda? What was sort of the environment they were entering? Well, the environment they they were entering was one of of chaos and upheaval. Uh, Such chaos and upheaval that it has led some observers to wonder if the monarchy would even, the Tutsi monarchy would even have survived had Europeans not entered the country and and partnered with it to to buttress it and uphold its power. Uh, Specifically, uh, just prior to 1891, there was a a coup in Rwanda called the Rakunshu. And as it turns out, one of the the kings was overthrown and his lineage was exterminated and so the the current uh, usurper in power was on shaky ground but this uh this question of hutu versus tutsi uh there's a tendency post genocide to to define the country's uh, uh social dynamics in this way without questioning it and the reality is that a, a deeper reading of rwandan history would show that the country was really uh, varied and that there was no distinct Hutu or Tutsi uh, that one can discern. There were, there were cattle herders, uh, Hema and Tutsi, and there were uh, farming peoples that were referred to as Hutu. The terms really don't come into use in the, till the 19th century. Uh, and so there's, 
there's also people who are who are known by different clan names and regions around the country, such as the Bakiga in northern Rwanda, who who don't really fit the category of Tutsi or Hutu either one. So the the notion of being of separate Hutu and Tutsis doesn't really exist prior to the late nineteenth century. They existed in a form, but the terms evolved, as I talk about in the book, especially the meaning of the term Hutu. It, it evolves uh, over a number of years. Tutsi was a more defined category, you can say. But certainly the notion that they were separate races or separate ethnicities is, is absurd. But of course, it was an absurdity born out of the 19th century uh, social Darwinism and commonly held racial assumptions of the day which originated in this notion that the Tutsis were, were outsiders that, that came in and conquered the Hutu and, and ruled over them. And the European missionaries of, of every church and the explorers, the early academics, uh, even early 20th century Rwandan academics, accepted this notion out of hand. And it led to some uh, grievous misreadings of the relationship between the two. All that said... Under the, the reign of a late 19th century monarch named Rwabujiri, uh, the Hutu-Tutsi categories became more rigidly defined. There was a render-pest cattle plague that swept the country in the 1890s and nearly wiped out um, the entire uh, cattle population, uh, by some estimates, northwards of 90%. And so the monarch Rwabujiri in effect, uh, confiscated all of the cattle that remained and reparceled them out to his favored clients, which had the effect of further retrenching the divide between Hutu and Tutsi that had emerged. So I would argue that there, there was a division by the late 19th century, the time that the Europeans arrived, uh, a division that favored the Tutsi heavily. Uh, there, are, there are records and evidence that the Hutu were already complaining about Tutsi oppression, the Tutsi controlled the monarchy, and this is the situation that the Europeans stepped into and began through standard European colonial practices uh, called indirect rule, uh, partnered with the Tutsi monarchy to rule over the country. And, and so that's, uh, that was a misreading of the situation, and especially uh, of, of casting them as separate races or ethnic groups, and this this especially uh, erroneous notion that the Tutsi were outside conquerors in the region. There, there's no evidence of that. And so you explore how, because as the book goes on, because one group was in charge when the Anglicans came in, um, this is where you bring in the Catholic missionaries as well, which I found quite interesting, um, showing that kind of because of these political divisions in Rwanda, it also then sort of ends up mapping onto, in a way, almost religious divisions with the Catholics versus Anglicans ending up with kind of different levels of support across the Hutu and Tutsi populations. So I was wondering if you could help us understand a little bit kind of how did we end up with, you know, more Hutus being either Catholic or Anglican? You know, how, how did these divisions end up kind of happening? Well, the, the the primary reason I brought the Catholics into it early in the story is that uh, in Uganda, where they uh, first began their work in the region, the Catholic Church under or the Catholic missionaries, the White Fathers, as they come to be called, under Labajeri, uh, they they came to value the idea of converting 
the elites in a society, of converting the nobility, of converting the king with the assumption that the masses would follow. And so the Catholics, when they they fell behind in Uganda, when it became clearly uh, a British province, the Catholics in Rwanda intentionally set out from the beginning to convert the Tutsi elites, uh, and especially the the Amwami, the king. So the Anglicans who entered later and did so much more uh, much more inauspiciously, uh, they sought out converts from among the the Hutu. But they also had their eye on the Tutsi and speak glowingly of the the superior Tutsi and celebrated Tutsi conversions when they had one uh, far more in the research materials than they do the Hutu. And so I I think both groups were uh, on some level uh, infatuated with the idea of converting the monarchy, converting the elites, and then seeing the masses follow along. And that process accelerates dramatically when the events of the revolution began because the, the Tutsi elites finding themselves now uh, on shaky ground as the Belgians had begun to switch their support to a Hutu majority, Rwanda, they, they gravitated to the Anglican mission stations and hoped to find solace there. And uh, the, the Anglican missionaries of the Rwanda mission, as it was called, uh, you know, gleefully took them in. Uh, they saw that as part of their Christian duty to provide aid and shelter, but <clears throat> it was also looked at as an opportunity again to convert the uh, the Tutsi elites. And so how did this end up progressing as both the Anglican and Catholic um, sort of missions continued in Rwanda? Did Can you explain a bit of kind of how the split continued or sort of what happened to kind of the everyday people in terms of choosing between these options? Well, the Catholics uh, have always been the the majority, uh, overwhelmingly so. And it especially uh, follows the uh, the events of when the, the Mwami uh, converts to Catholicism and Rwanda is declared the world's first Catholic nation. And, and so the masses uh, followed along, in fact, with that, I talk about in the book how in Rwanda, uh, spiritual uh, spiritual ideas and indigenous faiths did not really require any behavioral reform on the part of the masses, such as Christianity, you know, hopes for. And so, I, I think that the the mass conversions to Catholicism, following what was called the Catholic Tornado, which mirrored the early uh, Anglican uh, East African revival saw widespread conversions without any sort of change in uh, internal behaviors, attitudes, and beliefs. Okay. For the, for the Anglicans, uh, as many of them uh, had converted, many of the Tutsis had converted to uh, Anglicanism, when, the, when they were expelled from the country following independence, and they became the group called the 59ers, and the majority of them fled to southern Uganda. Uh, they they took with them a, a majority Anglicanism. They weren't all Anglican, of course, but uh, the Anglican church becomes, uh, in a sense, the church of the refugees and the church of the exiles to a large, large extent. While still an Anglican hierarchy in indigenous hands still remained in Rwanda, which, like the Catholic hierarchy, uh, you know, saw itself as uh, now a Hutu church. 
uh, at least uh, aligning with the Hutu presidents that that come, such as Kai Banda and Javier Imana. And so the the leadership of the churches that remain uh, in the country after the, the 1959 revolution and the expulsion of, of many of the Tutsi, uh, it became a very politicized church, um, heavily aligned with the regime, all the way down to when the killing begins in 1994. So this idea of highly politicized, right, is this is something that comes out throughout your book, that the Rwandan political culture from the pre-colonial days all the way, you argue, till now, um, has frequently and institutionally used historical revisionism as a political tool and even as a weapon. So I was wondering if you could briefly explain kind of what this historical revisionism often looks like in Rwanda uh, how and how this has developed? Why is this such a big thing? Okay, sure. I mean, going all the way back to uh, the founding of the monarchy in the 16th century, uh, Ndori, who is uh, held to be the first Mwami uh, and the founder of the, the Inyagenya monarchy, uh, he co-opted uh, an indigenous, indigenous faith system, the cult of Gahanga, to augment and shore up his power. And, and leverage this spiritual belief system to affirm himself as a legitimate monarch. Uh, later on, uh, down the road, uh, much the same thing is done with the, uh, the uh, Ryan Gombe cult. Uh, during the reign of, uh, the name is uh, Rutar Wendua, uh, he also uh, makes use of this uh, cult to to further shore up the political changes he made to affirm his legitimacy and it goes on and and on down the road the uh the the monarchs in the early 19th century uh used the catholic church and the catholic church's desire to to be ensconced in the the regime and to uh and to to, to convert the, the monarchy and to convert the Tutsi elites, uh, the monarchy also saw the Catholics as an opportunity to support their own prerogatives. And the, first the Germans and the Belgians aided the, the Tutsi monarchy in suppressing rebellions and expanding the kingdom. And the, the church, the Catholic church stood by that. And the Anglicans, I would argue, followed the same process. None of this is exceptionally unique to Rwanda. I mean, the world history is uh, riddled with monarchies that caught upon uh, a spiritual belief to augment their power. That's a very common practice. Uh, we, I think we all know that, uh, you know, the pharaohs of Egypt, the emperors of China claimed contact with the divine to shore up their legitimacy. And this happens in Rwanda. That makes sense. Um, and, uh, I, I would, I would just add that in Rwanda's case, the the Catholics and the Anglicans become willing accomplices in that process in the 20th century, even with presidents following the end of the, the monarchy. Right. And this is the, you know, the kind of the core of the book, really, is the idea of the Anglican church being so close to whichever political regime was in charge in Rwanda that that sometimes skewed their understanding of the situation. I was wondering if you could give us one or two examples of sort of how this emphasis on historical revisionism in Rwanda has impacted the Anglican church. 
Well, as the book notes from the outset, uh, <clears throat> I, I argue that the current regime in Kigali is promoting a, a false narrative of Rwanda's history. Uh, their narrative holds that there never was such a thing as a Hutu or a Tutsi until the Europeans came along and, and quote-unquote, racialized these categories, declaring that the Tutsis were a separate race and a separate ethnicity, that the Tutsis were outside conquerors who came to rule over the Hutu, and that there is some truth in that. However, when they do that, they obfuscate the fact that there was clear political categories of Hutu and Tutsi, and that the oppression of the Hutu was uh, severe at the hands of the Tutsi monarchy. And, uh, of course, now uh, the majority of the government of Kigali is in uh, Tutsi hands, not entirely in recent years. Uh, they have done some some window dressing and brought a few Hutu in. But, it, but there's abundant evidence that it's still a Tutsi regime in power in Kigali. Uh, Kagami is Tutsi, as most know, and uh, most of the people in power came from outside of Rwanda even. And so this this dialogue, this narrative that Kigali maintains, <clears throat> it, it seeks to erase ethnicity uh, from the cover of Rwanda by arguing that there was never once a Hutu or a Tutsi, and there's not now. We're all Rwandans, as the mantra goes. But virtually everyone in the country knows that there are still Hutu and Tutsi. As I say, tongue-in-cheek, um, but with a real-life example in the book, all you have to do is ask a cab driver if someone is a Hutu or a Tutsi, and they clearly know who they are. So ethnicity is not ethnicity, and we don't even like to call it ethnicity because it's not ethnic uh, differences. Um, but it is a category. And so the attempt to erase these categorical understandings has not been successful in the minds of the people, even though the church, the Anglican church in particular, also supports this narrative of there, there having never been a Hutu or Tutsi. By saying that there never was a difference, then that makes it uh, more palatable to say that there is not now. This was the European creation of racial categories. The Europeans did racialize the question <clears throat> for sure. But uh, those categories existed before the Europeans showed up. Uh, one could argue the European racialization of it made it worse, uh, but it was there. And so the truth lies somewhere in the middle, I think, of the older, now discredited Hamitic notion that Hutu and Tutsi are separate racial categories. That is discredited, but the book also discredits the idea that there never was any sort of difference. And. So one thing you talk about is as the Anglican Church, as, as Rwanda, sorry, moves from being a colony into a republic, the Anglican Church tries what you call sort of an apolitical stance um, that nonetheless, as you demonstrate, is pretty fundamentally political. Um, so is this the sort of thing that you're talking about here with the idea of kind of whatever, if the government is saying that these divisions aren't real, sure, we'll go along with that as the Anglican Church. Um, can you explain for us kind of what you mean? What is this attempt at a political stance and how is it not actually that? Uh, by the Anglican mm -hmm. Church? Well, I think the, the church hierarchy knows full well that there are still mm -hmm. distinct categories. And I think they know full well that the country is run by Tutsi elites. And they, they do that on the one hand because it supports a reconciliation narrative or that is, they, they accept the line 
from Kigali uh, because it supports the reconciliation narrative that they also work towards, which I think is genuine on some level on the church's part to try to reconcile the country um, in the name of healing and in the name of recovery and in the hopes of preventing future conflict. But it's problematic because by doing so, they're they're also supporting a a regime in Kigali that shows no signs of letting go of power anytime soon, that is still largely a, a Tutsi regime, and that oppression in Rwanda is is still rampant, and the Hutu are uh, discriminated against, and so it's uh, so it's it's not effective. But I, I think on some level they they want to embrace that narrative by Kigali. And it's frankly, I think, survival because, you know, we're talking about a a dictatorial regime that has a clear history of intervening in church decisions, uh, including the appointment or, uh, you know, wanting to approve of the appointment of bishops and other prelates. And so on that idea of kind of the the church, the state getting involved with the Anglican church, Um, I admit my own understanding and knowledge of Rwanda comes from the political science side, comes from the war side. I'm not a theologian, um, which is why I was so interested in your book. I learned a lot from it. Um, But I was wondering if we could stray into that territory for a moment. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk us through the doctrinal focus on pre-millennialism. I believe I've pronounced that correctly. Um, And how that doctrinal focus by the church impacted how the church sort of saw itself in relation to the Rwandan state? Okay. I think that we should maybe zero in on the Rwanda mission, as it was called. Uh, that is the the missionaries that ventured out from the church missionary society in Uganda and were the, in effect, the, the pioneering founders of the Anglican church in Rwanda. They in particular were uh, apolitical, uh, focused uh, heavily on gospel conversions rather than critiquing the socio-political context. And the, the notion of premillennialism uh, plays heavily into this. Premillennialism uh, came out of the 19th century with the teachings of Cyrus Schofield, who was the uh, originator of premillennialism. And his Bible, famously called the Schofield Chain Reference Bible, was the Bible of choice by these early Rwanda missionaries. And premillennialism holds, of course, that that the world will continue to become increasingly corrupt and sinful until the literal return of Christ and the beginning of his uh, reign on earth. And so the the notion that any of that can be fixed or stopped by political engagement uh, is 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 not going to to work, and so it 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 feeds into an already apolitical stance of wanting to focus on conversions, believing that conversion would reform the individual, and that's the only hope of reforming society, and so you you simply look at political oppression or political problems, political issues, I think, as just a consequence of the age. And they also believe that they were living at the end of times, uh, that the last days, as they were called, were upon us. And so there wasn't really time or reason to, to be concerned about reforming the corruption of this earth, just convert the believer. 
I hope that makes sense. That does. That that I, I'm, not, I'm not a theologian, so I'm out of my uh, bailiwick well, a little bit. I'm definitely farther out, so that makes a lot of sense to me. And so can you help us understand how, with that sort of mindset, with that belief, I would imagine, and I, in fact, I know from reading the book, that this means that calling out the state, calling out any state, in this case Rwanda, for any sort of oppression or historical revisionism is essentially seen by that mindset of the church as sort of out of their jurisdiction. Would that be an accurate right. understanding? And, yes, and, and almost a distraction to the to the Christian call. It, it really is, as I talk about it and think about it, it stands in stark contrast to the, to the many actions of the churches in the United States today who want to openly engage and even control the political process. So it's a it's almost the opposite of that. And why was that Bible the Bible of choice for the missionaries coming into Rwanda? Well, a lot of them had their their training at Cambridge, uh, where most of them were training as as doctors. And there was a split in the church. Uh, there was a split in many churches in those days between what was called the modernist slash liberal wing and the orthodox wing. And of course, as you, you know, the, the coming of the 20th century represented a, a time of modernism. And many modernistic changes were being visited upon the earth. And, and, and there was a faction who wanted to cling to orthodoxy and who wanted to cling to literal interpretations of the scriptures. And from that, I think they were attracted to uh, Schofield's uh, literal uh, interpretations of these end-time matters. And, and I would add into this part of the conversation that you know this is a group of missionaries who are living through World War I uh, and the destructions that were wrought on European society by that war, uh, they would have been aware of the, the economic upheavals of the 1930s. They would have seen the coming of World War II and the Holocaust and then the Cold War. And so for them, it did seem as if they were living in the darkest of times and that that modernism had brought that on. And so I think that led them to cling even harder to the idea of simply not getting caught up in the distractions of a fallen world and converting, solely converting the individual and hoping to change society through the heart of the believer. Interesting. And to pick up on a point you mentioned at the beginning, despite your expectations and despite perhaps the history um, of Rwanda, there seems to be something of a language issue going on here. Um, you explore how in chapter five, you, you explore in chapter five, how the administration of Rwanda since 1994 is primarily English speaking, as many of them were refugees um, in... What's the official language? In Right, in English speaking countries. And so English is an official language, um, but it's not necessarily something that is spoken by everyone in the country or as um, strongly by everyone in the country and certainly was not necessarily before that. Um, but the Anglican Church, in your description, seems to still be essentially operating in English in Rwanda. Um, Absolutely. So how does this sort of make sense in terms of trying to focus on the individual and converting the individual? Does this create a language barrier for the Anglican Church to try and convert people in Rwanda? Is this a symptom of focusing on the elite? What, how does this language barrier factor into the Anglican Church? Well, at the engagements that, that I attended and the gatherings I went to in 2004 and in 2007, uh, presentations, sermons, exhortations, speeches, teachings, what have you, 
were always given first in English. And then there was a translation into Kenya Rwanda. So they, so they translate from the pulpit or from the stage. But as a, you know, for Westerners visiting the country to, to observe the church and engage with it, it's difficult to know what is being received by the masses in Kenya Rwanda. What may sound one way in English, we don't know what, what the native Kenya Rwanda speaker is hearing who doesn't, who's not fluent in English. More and more of the country is learning English because that's what they teach in the schools. But uh, many of the Anglican clergy and pastors who returned after the genocide did not speak French or Kenya Rwanda, which is a, a shocking realization, I think, for observers of the country that these exiles returned, having grown up their entire lives in refugee camps in southern Uganda, educated in British schools, and they didn't know the, the native tongue of Rwanda. Uh, they, they were English speakers, and so that has been a transition that the country has undergone. Uh, I think the government in Rwanda, in Kigali, the regime that came to power, uh, endorsed this idea because they themselves were English speakers, and they also wanted to align themselves with the Anglophone world, particularly the United States and uh, the UK, perhaps, because uh, there was a lot of ill feelings, and there still is, between Kigali and Paris, as you may know. Uh, there's been many diplomatic rows between Rwanda and, and France. Uh, in part, the French were blamed for some, some of their actions during the genocide. And so, there, so there's reasons, in their mind, I think, good reasons for transitioning the country to being an English-speaking country. But uh, again, I think that there's, there's issues that the church sh- should address that they don't seem to be uh, addressing. Uh, for example, it, it's a constant reminder to the masses, I would say, that the church leadership came from outside the country, that they did not grow up in Rwanda. And they can be seen as outsiders in that fashion. Um, it also, and again, like I said a minute ago, you, for observers coming to Rwanda, uh, overwhelmingly from the United States, uh, the U.S. supporters of the church, you're, you're relying upon what you're told in English without knowing what the Kenya Rwanda speaker is hearing or thinking. Was there, obviously not since 1994, but um, through your research, did you find um, evidence of the Anglican Church in Rwanda grappling with this, thinking about whether to work in other languages, thinking about how to um, attract Kenya Rwanda speakers, or um, has this has the Anglican Church sort of always just been happy with going with English? I, I've come across nothing that's, that would suggest they have tried to speak to that issue. And why not? I, I, I think they've gone. Ahead. Well, I, I think that that's that again is the the wishes of Kigali to to conform to uh, the the notion that this is going to become an Anglophone country now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So to speak of, of course, the genocide, um, unfortunately, a topic we end up discussing when it comes to Rwanda and um, 
in your book, it's in chapter four. And what you uh, bring up is an important detail that I think in studies of the Rwandan genocide generally is often mentioned, but usually as sort of a footnote, um, which is certainly how I'm familiar with the fact that a high number of massacres took place within churches, both Catholic churches and Anglican churches. Um, And you give further detail that in a number of these instances, this happened where priests had actually invited people inside to take shelter with the presumption that the people thought that they would be safe within a church. But then the priests stepped aside when Genesee Darius came to kill those sheltering. Um, And you note that this was not the case with uh, mosques and imams in Rwanda at the time, who likewise invited uh, people to shelter, but then did not step aside. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could sort of try and help us understand, particularly the stepping aside aspect. Um, does this have anything to do with what we've talked earlier about in terms of being trying to be apolitical or siding with the regime? What, where does this particular pattern come from? Well, indeed, as African Rights Watch uh, has noted, and as has been quoted many times, more Rwandans were killed at churches than any other place in the country. And it is as as you described there. So I think that it's a part of the the deep alignment with uh, the leadership of the Anglican and Catholic churches. Uh, I think that they... uh, in effect, uh, supported the program that was underway by the Hutu power faction. Uh, yes, it's a harsh criticism, but I, that's the evidence. Down to the level of the priest, um, maybe there was a fear factor going on that, that if you don't do this, then you would be seen as a, a traitor to the Hutu power uh, efforts to cleanse the country of the Tutsi. And as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, the, the irony of the Anglican church trying to be apolitical and focus solely on gospel conversions and hoping that that would reform society. There, there's not a lot of evidence of that happening, uh, especially during the genocide, um, when a blind eye was turned by so many uh, to the atrocities that were going on. And so it doesn't seem as if gospel conversions alone uh, undid these old notions of the Hutu being outside invaders and being of a different race. Um, It's important to remember that these notions were absorbed by generations of Rwandans, both Hutu and Tutsi. And the the flip side of casting the Tutsi as outside invaders led many Hutu to consider themselves the rightful owners of the country, that Rwanda was a Hutu nation. And I think the the extremism of, of... the years leading up to 1994 uh, played very much uh, into those notions. And can you tell us a bit more about how the church sort of was involved in the escalation of tensions before the genocide? Well, the archbishop of the the Anglican church sat on the ruling council of the party in power. And so uh, he was very closely uh, aligned with the regime. And uh, many of the, and these, this notion of pastors stepping aside and, uh, even, even inviting people to come to the churches for safety, then locking the doors and calling the Intero Hamwe. Uh, this happened on, in both churches. I would add not everybody. Uh, Timothy Longman, especially in his books, um, he writes in the Presbyterian Church, but he, he notes that there's examples from every church of uh, parishioners defying this and not participating. 
And so we can't condemn everyone. But uh, I think the, the church just, in a sense, was irrelevant in Rwanda during the genocide, if not overly actually complicit in the killings. So to move towards your experience of writing this book, um, of course, we are all are academics. We all undergo various research processes. Um, and that's, of course, of interest as well. So on the topic of Rwandan politics, this can often be a tricky one to research. And you mention it yourself in chapter five of your book, that foreign authors who write critically about Rwanda can face pushback. So if you're willing to discuss it a little bit, could you tell us about how that impacted your book or your writing experience? Well, I have not, at least yet, experienced any, uh, uh, any pushback, but I'm expecting it. Uh, I, I presently, uh, I would not go to Rwanda um, because I don't want to be detained, as some academics have. I don't want to be questioned. As I noted in the book, Susan Thompson, an American researcher, was detained and her passport taken for a week for quote-unquote re-education. Um, there are other uh, Rwandan academics who've been active for years who are, who are not welcome in the country. Uh, my uh, only brush up against it was in 2007, uh, not long after my return, I had been asked to head this Anglican mission board to scout out development opportunities, which we did. But I also, by that time, had started to reach some of the conclusions I came to in the book. And so I uh, slipped off the grid on occasion. Uh, I slipped out of the presence of our handlers and asked some of my own questions and did some of my own research. And to be fair, uh, the church figures there knew full well that I was a scholar of African history, and I had, was talking about writing a book about the Anglican Church in Rwanda, and that was celebrated. But I believe the assumption was that my writings would support their narrative, if you will. I think that for the overwhelming majority of the people that go there to travel around the country in the hands of the Anglican Church are woefully ignorant of Rwanda's history. And so they accept the narrative that's offered by the church, which is, of course, the same narrative offered by Kigali. And I maybe I was assumed to be in that category, but I was not. So before even my first journal article was published uh, on this topic with the Journal of Modern African Studies, um, I was uh, I was telephoned by one of the, the bishops in the uh, Anglican Church, uh, the split away group of the Anglican Church here, and was disinvited from Rwanda and was told that this Anglican mission board was being disbanded and that, that I was no longer needed in that capacity. And when I inquired as to why that was, I suspected why. When I inquired about it, it was it was so along the lines of just, well, you know, just think about the things that you did and you know, and I was told that Kagami, who at that time was the Archbishop of the Anglican Church, who I had met on that trip, that he himself had disbanded the committee. It wasn't the, it was not the decision of the Americans over here. It was, uh, I'm sorry, um, I said Kagami, not not Kagami. It was Kalini, Emmanuel Kalini, the Archbishop of the Anglican Church. There, it was uh, it was mentioned to me that he was disbanding this committee. And that he had concerns, uh, I suppose, about me and that I was not welcome over there anymore with the Anglican Church. And so I haven't gone back. But I, I suspect, without being able to ask, I suspect that my activities of 
slipping out of the reach of my handlers and and making my own inquiries. I, I stayed behind a few days in Gahini and did research that year after the rest of the Anglican Mission Board came home. So I don't know what came out to the church hierarchy about my visit and the questions I was asking and the research I was doing, but I suspect some of that came out. And I was uh, not, not welcome to come back and keep asking questions. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's really helpful for us to understand sort of research processes and how things like that can be impact. And um, as an aside, any listeners who are interested in this particular topic around uh, the Rwandan government and uh, views of criticism and use of tourism to avoid criticism. Um, I did an interview with Dr. Alexander Dukalski that was published on the network a few days ago um, on his book titled Making the World Safe for Dictatorship that has an entire section on the Rwandan government and the use of tourism in this particular way, um, which is, sounds, sounds like your experience was exactly the sort of thing that he's talking about. Um, please go on. Well, well, yes. I mean, I, you know, I noticed that we were always in the presence of Anglican church handlers. Uh, others report that experience, uh, an effort to uh, to sort of keep you out of the 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 mix with ordinary Rwandans. I think that's very much on the minds of the church when visitors come. Uh, and yes, I mean, you know, Visitors over there who are there to support the Anglican Church are ferried around the country and treated to uh, game drives at the National Park and go uh, on guerrilla sightseeing tours. And, you know, you really have a grand experience if you go there and and don't ask questions and accept what you're told. It's a it can be a delightful trip. (laughs) But uh, but I'm a historian and we ask questions and we do research and I simply found, and my research over the years that continued, uh, affirmed that, that all is not well, and that it's not all the, uh, it's not what we're being told about the country. So staying on the topic of your research process, um, I was wondering if anything particularly comes to mind for something surprising that you discovered in writing this book. Something surprising that I discovered, well, It was uh, surprising to me, um, which I did not expect at the beginning, was surprising to me the degree to which Kagame and the regime in Kigali monitors the activity of its critics on a a really eye-popping level. I I recount, of course, you may be familiar with Paul Mm Rasasabagina, the hero of Hotel Rwanda, it came out of my book that uh, he was uh, over there, where he was over here in uh, Illinois speaking at an Anglican church. And this was when the regime had already decided that he was an enemy of the state. And he, but he was speaking at one of the Anglican churches uh, in Chicago to raise money for a children's school in Rwanda. One way or another, I the the Kigali found out that he was speaking at one of the Anglican Church's partner churches in the United States, and intervened. And the Archbishop I mentioned earlier, Kalini, directly intervened and told the church they had to disinvite Rasasa Begina from speaking, because he was not an approved person by Kigali. And the church complied very quickly. I was interviewed by the magazine Christianity Today about that, and there was just immediate compliance. Um, by the church in Chicago to disinvite 
Rasasa Begina, but you know, it's obvious that they they were monitoring that act, the activity and were monitoring his his actions. And there's other examples of that 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 social media is monitored. I think publications are monitored, and it you know having wrote written the book I just wrote, it that's why it would make me apprehensive about going back to Rwanda. I don't consider myself a famous author or not nearly as well known as many other Rwanda scholars, but. I have written a book that is critical of the regime, and frankly, there's other countries in Africa to visit and research right now until things change. Fair enough. Well, my last question feels perhaps a little bit mean, because this book is just out really last month, January 2020, so it feels a bit too soon to ask you this, but if I may, can you share with us a little bit about what you're working on now or next? I'm happy to share that. I have... uh... Uh, I, I, I've said my piece, I suppose, about the political situation in Rwanda and and the church's involvement there. And I, I don't think there's much more to be said about that. So I am uh, moving into the less contentious terrain of pre-colonial Rwanda. And I have begun to to do some research on the formation of kingship in Rwanda and the formation of the state with the hopes of putting that in the context of world history and the rise of absolutism in, in other societies. So I hope that will keep me engaged in Rwanda studies, but it'll also uh, keep me out of the, the social media contentions over Rwanda. Thank you. I think that'll be really interesting. Um, I know that the pre-colonial parts of this book were quite rich in detail. Um, there's clearly a lot there that I think those of us who study the later part of Rwanda um, don't always know very much about. So I think that that will be really useful research to contribute to the field. Well, there is. I mean, in a philosophical sense, I think there needs to be more research into the country's history for its own sake, because since the 1994 genocide, that has been in the backdrop of so much Rwanda uh, research. And without diminishing the genocide in any way, shape, or form, I, I think it's we're at a point where it's okay to begin looking at the country's pre-colonial history for its own sake. Well, it sounds like you've got a great research agenda ahead of you. Um, But first, I want to thank you very much for taking your time uh, to share your thinking expertise with the podcast. Um, Again, to our listeners, the book is called Revival and Reconciliation, the Anglican Church and the Politics of Rwanda. And it was published by the University of Wisconsin Press uh, this past month, January 2022. So thank you very much, Dr. Cantrell, for being here. Thank you.